Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the topic of globalization. My guest is James Tunney, who is a qualified barrister in Ireland. He has lectured all over the world on the topic of globalization as a, as a lawyer in the field of law. In addition, he is the author of several books. He is also a, a fine art painter and uh, his books include the Mystical Accord, Sutras to Suit Our Times, Lines for Spiritual Evolution, about which we have uh, had previous discussions. And I would encourage viewers who, who uh, because today's topic is rather political in nature, who want a little more background. If you haven't viewed those videos, I'm linking to them now in the upper right-hand corner of, of your screen. You might want to watch them first to get a sense of the depth of my guest today. He's also written two novels, one of them is called Blue Lies September. The other one is called Ireland. I don't recognize who she is. Dystopian novels, incidentally. Welcome, James. Very well remembered. Uh, I have a feeling of deja vu. I think I need to see a parapsychologist. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Is my consulting hours are open? <laughs> <laughs> no. So, you... You have a very diverse background as as a scholar, as a poet, as a painter, as a uh, teacher, a professor of law. And as a professor of law, one of your big interests has been globalization. And this is a topic uh, that I sense amongst the viewers of uh, New Thinking Aloud is controversial. Many people yearn for globalization and other people fear it. So, let's, let's get uh, uh, into and it. And as a matter of interest, yeah. what do you think the weight of the camps are in relation to the feedback that you get? Well, you know, the, the feedback isn't necessarily, it's reflective of the, the strength of the feelings okay. that people have, point. not necessarily the numbers. Good point, yeah. I, my, my thing is that, uh, my feeling is, my perception is that the, uh, uh, very strong feelings of fear when the, when the, especially the phrase new world order comes up, uh, with regard to globalization. But I think probably the, I'm going to suggest that the fear represents maybe 20% of the viewers, uh, <laughs> and that, and that the other 80% are positively inclined towards globalization. That, that's okay. my sense. Um, well, let me try and present some of the arguments and some of the factors as I see it. Now, okay. uh, my last title uh, was a, a senior lecturer. That's what they call it in Britain. I was a visiting professor in, in, in various uh, universities. Um, so I tended in, in my, in the subjects that, uh, that I wrote about and the subjects I lectured on to look at new areas of law, how law applied to evolving areas. So I lectured in subjects such as intellectual property, communications, technology, law. I, I had modules in China and world trade. I've been to China a few times. I've lectured to the High Court of Beijing and uh, the Chinese Academy of Social Science and various universities over there. Uh, 
and uh, I've I've written extensively about those subjects, about travel and tourism law, all areas which are about the the evolution of globalization. Um, and I, I set up a degree program in, in European Union law. So uh, that, that, that was, as I said, a degree program and a network in that domain. So I was very familiar with the discourse. I've met a number of the key personalities. I remember meeting... Nigel Farage about uh, 20 years ago, uh, years ago and hear him talking about. So I would have come across a lot of these arguments that seem to have come up suddenly, but really were lurking there in the background. Nigel Farage, for viewers who may not know, was uh, a very prominent uh, proponent of the British Brexit. He was probably the lead. He, history will probably accredit him as being the main driver behind it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, that, that, that election, I think, had implications for other jurisdictions that we're not going to get into. <laughs> okay. But, um, so, uh, I, I, I've looked at, so you start off, lawyers in Ireland, for example, they would concentrate on, on Irish law. But since Ireland joined the European Union, that meant that we were part of a new legal system. The Europe, it changed its name, the European Community, the, uh, until it became the European Union. So it reflects more a movement towards a kind of federal system, like the, as happened in relation to states and the federal government in the United States. Yeah. So when you join and sign the treaties, what happens is you, uh, you give up, you relinquish some of your legal sovereignty. So this is not a hypothetical issue, not an issue of, of, of political discussion. Legally, from a legal perspective, you're signing away some of your sovereignty. So there's no debate about that. Mm -hmm. So every country which is a member of these regional legal communities have pooled some of the sovereignty, as the court said. And they knew that when they were, when they were signing up. So the European Court of Justice, it says what the, what the, the law is. As in Alice in Wonderland, words mean what I say they mean. The European Court of Justice decides as the Supreme Court does in the United States. So the, the legal, uh, the, the legal shift changed from nation states to regional legal communities. Yeah. Now, in, in, in the, uh, the Western Hemisphere, we had uh, the development of NAFTA and Mercosur. So we had the, the, the evolution and the Asian countries. We had the evolution of a number, a handful, of massive regional legal communities. So the conception is not purely economic, uh, economic interaction. It's deeper than that. Mm. It's to effectively bring the countries together. So at the time I started teaching in Scotland, um, I think it was around the NAFTA, NAFTA discussions about NAFTA and the final agreements. And I, I was also interested in indigenous rights. I've always been fascinated, particularly from the uh, Irish perspective, and interested in indigenous rights. I've written about the Mabo case in Australia, which revolutionized the rights of Aboriginal people, where the court said that they actually owned some of the land still. And that has profound implications in Australian society today. It's very interesting. Um, so at the time of the NAFTA agreement, there was a revolution in Mexico. The Zapatistas rebelled and and they said that the NAFTA agreement will destroy the indigenous uh, corn-based uh, economy in, 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 in Mexico, in Chiapas. So this is quite amazing, and it didn't receive a lot of attention for that particular reason. So the indigenous 
people were engaged in uh, an armed struggle with Comandante uh, Marco, uh, Marcos, uh, who, le- who, who was part of this movement of, a, of uh, indigenous people to oppose a free trade agreement. So they realized that this free trade, trade agreement was deeper and would have more consequences than was hitherto to, to believe. So there's no question that there is a shift from the nation state to these regional legal community bodies. Now, if we think of what a nation state is, the nation state in Europe particularly developed after the Treaty of Westphalia a few hundred years ago when they wanted to settle the, 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 the 30 years war and the wars that had been going on, Catholic and Protestant wars. Um, and with the Reformation, if we can think of King Henry VIII, um, of course, with the break from Rome, we have a movement towards the state and the state control. So we have a movement away from a, a more regional legal community that the, would have existed under the church, mm-hmm. for example. You're referring specifically to European states. Specifically as the example, because that's where the model really, really began to, to grow, because they were the colonial powers and they were spreading the models that would exist through the empires. And if we think of in relation to Africa, when they came to have the conferences, they divided up, they drew, drew straight lines on a map to divide up Africa for the European powers, for the colonial powers. But there was still a notion that there was a a, a, a country there and they, and they purported to project onto the thing European mm-hmm. ideas. Mm-hmm. So, but strangely and paradoxically, if you look at it from a legal perspective, the Catholic Church developed uh, uh, its own jurisdiction in, in, in uh, canon law. And its idea is that this will be a global, a, a, a global regime. So, so you can say that the, the Catholic Church are, are one institution who have always been globalist in their mm-hmm. conception. And the same would, would apply to, uh, from a jur- uh, juridical perspective to Islam, because it would view it, its rules as, as naturally encompassing the whole world. Mm-hmm. So already we can see that there has been uh, ideas, and there are ideas, uh, which predate some of these developments of universal jurisdiction. Uh, and any empire would seek to expand at various stages to uh, to, to establish law. So we, we, we see, for example, there's a, a slight different emphasis in, a, in the United States, in New, in New Orleans and Louisiana. There's a slight different emphasis of law because of its links with with, with France mm-hmm. and the Spanish influence, different emphasis from common law jurisdiction. So the, the point is that there, there had been claims to universal jurisdiction. That's the, uh, the, a good way to look at it. Idea that there is, there's not just separate jurisdictions. There's, the, 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 there's, there's one legal order. Uh, and in, in recent times, there's a shift back towards that. So the suggestion by a lot of critics uh, there's a number of suggestions. There has been a lot of discourse about what's called a democratic deficit when you move from a one country to regional legal community. So when I'm talking about in Ireland, remember they, they had a, a war of independence, a civil war, they had a constitution in 1937, and then it was only declared a republic in 1948. And within a generation after being declared a republic, it's given away its sovereignty. So the period of freedom of the 26 counties, not of the entire uh, island, was very, very, very short-lived. Mm. Uh, 
So, uh, so there's no question that there, there is a relinquishing of sovereignty. And the question is, well, does the individual have the same protections in this, in the, in the, this, uh, mass system? And you have to remember as well that Ireland had a very strong legal tradition before the common law came. And then the common law partly grew up in Ireland as well when the Normans came. And they developed the systems that would be familiar in the United States as a, a major uh, common law system, Australia, etc. And concepts of rights. So the rights that developed were particularly r based on a Judeo-Christian idea. So you, and this appear, uh, evolved over a period of time where they, recon they increasingly recognized various rights. They regulated the powers of authorities. The barons controlled or reduced the power of the king with the Magna Carta and laid out rights that we're familiar with, the right to a trial by a jury of your peers. They were established by people fighting to control power above them. Uh, and these rights were embedded in the Irish system, in the US system, etc. Uh, which is interesting because the source of rights is important. Um, and if you say that the rights that an individual has are inherent in their, the dignity of the individual, based on that religious conception. You come to a different place than you would if you start off, say, in a Stalinist system. Now, there's a curious phenomenon that I, I, I've noticed in my lifetime. For example, if you take the issue of hate crime, okay, the idea of a hate crime was not there in, uh, in common law jurisprudence because it's focused on the individual. And it seems, as far as I can tell, uh, that uh, and it happened during the time of my legal career that hate crime. I, I remember hearing it for the first time. What's this? I've never I've never come across this term. But there is some suggestion that the idea of the hate crime came from uh, Stalinist Russia, mm -hmm. because when the Russians came, the Soviet Union came to the table at international uh, international. Uh, forums about uh, human rights, they couldn't come and say, oh yes, we protect the right to freedom of speech, we protect the right to equal, we, they couldn't do it, they didn't have it. So they came up with vague notions of protecting groups. So the idea of protecting groups is a, a, an idea which is recent and it's alien to the common law tradition. It's, mm. it's a big shift. Um, and then in Europe, you have, for example, you have a civil law and, and, and a common law tradition, two different traditions. So it is a very, very complex process. There's no question that in these regional legal communities, things change. And the question is, do, it seems in Europe, like in Ireland, there's a, a lot of satisfaction with the, with the European Union. So people uh, don't seem to feel that there's any loss of, uh, of rights in that sense. Uh, it seems from what I, I, I can tell, I don't hear much discourse on that. Some people are unhappy, uh, as we, we always mm -hmm. get different perspectives. But I, I don't see a huge movement. There were particular, uh, there was a professor who I used to see going around Trinity, who was an economist, who took action against the state and, and s said that they, they couldn't give away sovereignty, that required, required the, the, the country to take, uh, or to, 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 to have a, a referendum mm -hmm. before. But anyway, so, so we have these regional legal communities. And then, of course, from there, it's kind of natural to say, well, let's bring it together. Now, we have the United Nations, and again, people would say, well, the United Nations doesn't reflect the dominant legal foundational things in certain countries, or we, we will have to, we'll have to reduce the level of protection of human rights. There's various views yeah. on the efficacy of the United Nations. And then we have another approach, and, and, and one, the, the approach that, the shift that I predicted when I, I taught law in St. Andrews in, in, in the international relations course, 
because the idea then where was when you looked at international relations, you, you focus on states versus states. They call it realism in international relations theory. And, and, and I thought, this focus is a bit too narrow because the world has changed. So I was, I was trying to emphasize the fact that in the future, the legal discourse in international relations would shift to commercial issues, that they would become more significant. Mm. And this actually is what we hear in the discourse. If you listen to people that I've heard from from the other side of the Atlantic, like Steve Bannon, for example, he is talking about economic uh, economic uh, nationalism, if you want to call it. Some people describe it. But they are the issues that were always going to come to the surface because there's a shift from some of the other uh, issues that existed in a world not affected by technology to the same extent. Mm-hmm. So, um, but, but, but perhaps uh, I think we have to begin to think and say, what is glo- globalization apart from right. that? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, one of the major factors in globalization today is our, our multinational corporations. Some of them are uh, wealthier than individual nations. That's correct. So, so we have to consider that globalization, I, I've identified it as a legal phenomenon. Uh, you can also identify, well, of course, we have to recognize that it's an economic phenomenon. It's a technological phenomenon, commercial phenomenon, cultural phenomenon. It's all these different things. The key for me when I looked at the future and uh, I, I listened to Arthur C. Clarke's series in the 60s about the future and his view was that once you had the satellite communications, all borders were technology ren- rendered those uh, things redundant. And uh, I wrote an article on the basis of that about the, the digital remastering of the concept of jurisdiction and try to anticipate some of these problems that were going to, 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 to transpire. So... Uh, so technology radically changes it. So you might argue that, in fact, the world governance system is here. Yeah, this is this is this Some is the issue. Do that, 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 that is it's the iPhone. <laughs> well, 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 well. Yes, I mean these things are inevitably going to create convergence, and we will still have to always we will still have to deal with the this system of power. Now, there's the argument against the global government, of course, is that you're going to concentrate power. In, ev- in any system we look at, in a lot of systems, we can see that we might have the noblest of aspirations, but eventually there's a party comes in, a party system, and in the party they struggle for power. If you look at the history of the Roman Empire, what is it? It's a litany of the struggle for power. I think that the history of the Roman Empire will be uh, a good analogy to look for the future of what a uh, a future global government will be Mm -hmm. in relation to struggles for power. And unfortunately, in that context, the nice guys don't don't win, if you want to put it simply. The people that are more understanding, more open, they're not going to rise to the top. And we have some evidence, as far as I can see, that psychopaths are very good at at rising to the top in organizations. And uh, imagine how attractive it is to a person who who loves power to get this structure that guarantees them power because there will be individuals, there will always be a top to the pyramid. The question is, who is going to be at the top? Is it gen- genuinely representative of the people, which is going to be a difficult thing to do with all the people in the world? Yeah. Is it going to represent a particular ideology? Is it going to be communist? Is it going to be crony capitalism with big corporations? Uh, is it possible to have something in between? Because again, Karl Marx, 
Trotsky, Lenin, they wanted, they wanted uh, a world government as yeah. well, but communism. In fact, Stalin was the only one that was against that because he was going for socialism in one country because he didn't believe it was, it was possible. Uh, you know, that was what a lot of the debate with Stalin and Trotsky was about, cu uh, curious, mm -hmm. you know. So, so communism wants globalization because they believe that that's the best way for them. Capitalism wants mass markets and to be able to sell. And then we have other ideologies. And the ideology that I'm putting as, as a most dangerous is scientism. I believe that scientism is the one that's capable of linking all the other ones and in fact playing all the other elements. And that if we think of it from... Now, what do we mean by scientism? Yeah, let's define. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I refer to... Not science, not science, the scientific method, not all the good work that scientists do, but the idea that you can take science and use it as an exclusive way of seeing the world mm -hmm. and that that view is better and that that view tells you about the meaning of life and that view tells you about the proper ends and that, uh, that view can tell you about final causes and that it is a superior view to everything else. And, and your dystopian novel... Is about that, yeah. Yes. yeah because if, if I'm identifying that fear and the, the fear which is most significant, that would be the fear. Because if you're of that view, well, I hear scientists, and, I, and some of the scientists that I've talked to you and other scientists, and they say, well... I'm not convinced that there's any scientific basis to morality. And you say, well, hold on a second. How, how can that be that this person doesn't know what's, what's right and wrong, doesn't know that there's any concept of good and bad? So are these the people that are going to set the agenda for the future? Now, and the best person on this was C.S. Lewis, because C.S. Lewis wrote in his novel That Hideous Strength about this, fe this fear of scientism taking over and he believed that in the context of a world government or even a national government with the evolution of science that the scientists were going to take over there was going to be a scientocracy and furthermore so people say well that's just make believe you're paranoid these people are paranoid they're afraid of things they're xenophobic except they, they can't change they're behind the Luddites, all these things, mm -hmm. it, 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 there's a genuine and uh, a fear there that, that really has to be respected. So C.S. Lewis wrote about the Scientocracy and also H.G. Wells. So you say the New World Order, people are trying to claim, well, this is something that's, you know, in the dark or marshist on the internet, something that has bubbled up like a will-o'-the-wisp uh, in the darkness. But... H.G. Uh, Wells wrote a book called The New World Order, mm -hmm. and he wrote a book, The Open Conspiracy. And he uh, advocated for a kind of scientific elite taking over. He advocated. That's the key point. He said we should be open. We we, we sh it should be now open that, that 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 we're engaged in this conspiracy. We want the scientific government. Religion is just in the way. There'll be no religion. We'll be governed by by objectives, uh, and that that will will guarantee peace. So they keep on claiming that uh, peace is their objective. Although I don't see any great evidence of science, scientists preventing war. In fact, a lot of the wars are caused by their contributions and employment in the technologies that facilitate it. And I believe New Mexico has a history in relation to the evolution of weapons of destruction. Absolutely, yes. The first uh, atomic bomb was exploded here. Exactly, yeah. So the scientists say, well, 
we're exploring our knowledge. Oh, well, it has to be done. And here's what, 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 because H.G. Wells anticipated the atomic bomb. And in his, his book where he's anticipating, he, he was reading about radiation. He anticipates the bomb. He didn't believe it would be so big. Uh, but he says, and then what will happen is people will realize that the world can be destroyed and the scientists will come together in a conspiracy or in, in a collection, which is, which he said is, is something like gloriously illegal. He wasn't concerned about moral principle. The scientists will be in control and then everything will be okay. So it didn't work out like that. So you, you always hear this argument, just let us take over and everything is going to be okay. Yeah. So, I think Buckminster Fuller uh, also addressed these issues and yeah. would pose the question, who would you rather have in charge, politicians or technicians? And, yeah, and he yeah. advocated for technicians. He thought that politicians uh, were uh, less effective at getting things done. Yeah, but they might bear more resemblance to other humans than the technicians do. The problem with a certain type of mindset is that it can end up uh, just focusing on detail, yeah. focusing on objectives. And C.S. Lewis said that if you focus on objectives and take out uh, appeal to a higher authority, that then you will end up with either ext uh, fascism or communism, and they would both be destructive. Well, religious authorities don't have a great track record either. I mean, we had the Inquisition under the Catholic Church. Yeah, I might argue, uh, in relation to the evidence, that if you look at the numbers involved, if just take that Inquisition thing, to some extent it's been overblown, I think, if you look at the, a, a number of the books. There's an argument that if you take that example and ignore all the achievements, yeah. a, a, the achievements over the uh, hundreds of years that, you know, in, in the scales, it's it's not, not the key issue. You could look, you could focus on other issues. Mm -hmm. But certainly, uh, certainly if you look at the the Catholic kings in Spain, if you, 1492, Columbus going to America, um, uh, the expulsion of uh, uh, Islam and Judaism from from and, and the Reconquista, as they call it in, in Spain, and the uh, the conquest of the of the New World. Those things are are, are of a different order. So that, that those issues are more devastating than uh, I, I, I think the the doctrinal investigations mm -hmm. in Torquemada, however bad they were. So certainly they don't, don't have a good record. So that would be an argument against relinquishing power to big institutions as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, when you talk about scientism, I know that one of, uh, as a parapsychologist, mm -hmm. attempting to interject a, an awareness of uh, one could call it spirit, one could call it non-local consciousness, there are many words, but uh, we rail against scientism because the mainstream scientific culture doesn't want to recognize the empirical data of parapsychology. So uh, a, a scientific uh, regime would, would probably uh, outlaw parapsychology. I don't think so. I, I, I meant scientistic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Funny enough, I don't think they'll do that. I think yeah. they'll take you over. Uh -huh. I, I think that's what's going to happen. So, and I think that's what they're moving into consciousness now. Yeah. And they'll begin to cherry pick what's there, incorporate it into the scientific method, ignore the sources as they, as they always do. For, I mean, science is fantastic, but it can't tell us how an, how an anesthetic works, for example. Right. It's unbelievable. They don't tell you about the fact that indigenous people knew how to operate these things. They don't, and that they took mm -hmm. their, their knowledge. They don't tell you that um, 
how sophisticated the science is and traditional indigenous knowledge that enabled them to identify the combination of two plants necessary to create the ayahuasca experience, yeah. for example. Uh, they don't, they, they ignore all that and they want to claim the benefits of everything and the responsibility for nothing. I don't see scientists explaining about how they contributed towards the destruction of the environment, how their attitudes contribute towards the destruction of nature, how their focus on exploitation and material things to the exclusion of spiritual values and with contempt for spiritual values, for example, often are the very source of the problems. And the scientists, we saw they had a bit of regret after they realized the monster they created with the atomic bomb, but it's too late. The same thing is going to happen with nanotechnology, for example, which can, could be devastating. The, some of the experiments with biotechnology and uh, the combination of those interacting in unanticipated ways. Nanotechnology, genetic engineering, artificial intelligence. Yeah. And we go back to that idea of the mad scientist that we were talking about that runs through literature. Yeah. For example, even in the, in the Batman idea, the comics, they're talking about corruption, uh, um, yeah. officials and all. The, I suspect a lot of these artists utilized their, uh, their approach uh, to make critiques of society that they wouldn't have been, uh, have an opportunity to do otherwise and yeah. describe in the corrupt environment. We can see that also with Alan Moore in, in, in Britain and, and his, his work as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Alan Moore, the uh, author of The, the Watchmen. Yes, and, and it was done V for Vendetta uh -huh. as an interesting example. And his his graphic novel V for Vendetta led to all the anonymous masks at a Guy Fawkes representative. So it's an example. You're you're always asking about well, how do these things influence yeah. uh, society? And he's a, as as far as I understand from his description, he describes himself as a magician. So he's very aware he, of it. Yes, I know uh, that uh, Professor Jeffrey Kripal at Rice University in his book uh, Mutants and Mystics yes. writes about a, a number of the uh, great. Uh, graphic novel artists yes, yeah. uh, and how they've been influenced by esoteric traditions. Yeah. And uh, associated with this idea is if we look at where science is going, so, um, my idea is that what many scientists are preparing us for is the move away from the emphasis on natural selection to artificial selection. So we're going back, we'll go back to if you look at the, the upper class in the British Empire, they're always interested in breeding. Mm. The who is the who had the breeding for to be in the pyramid of control, breeding horses, breeding plants, breeding dogs. It's a fascination with that. You can see it in the background of the people who are supposedly solely interested in evolution. In Huxley's grandfather, Thomas Huxley, you can see this interest in and associated with that came with, with ideas of people forget about the racial context to that, studies of evolution. And so from that was associated, it was always there, the idea that we will be able to have evolved technical uh, yeah. man in the future. And we even see that in, in Trotsky and his, his view of the Well, future. I understand um, and have discussed this in, in other interviews, uh, for example, with Jason Giorgiani, yeah. Mm -hmm who is a philosopher of technology, that uh, the Chinese government now has a policy of uh, using genetic uh, modification to, over time, gradually increase the intelligence of the entire Chinese population. Yes, and they also have the, the social credit system, mm -hmm. uh, which, which will mean that 
Uh, Enormous social control. Huge social control. But... Um, Computers monitoring the day-to-day -day activities of every citizen uh, using big data to determine who is a good citizen and who is not. Yeah, it, well, uh, the computers will, the artificial intelligence will, will do it without the discretion that used to exist in the system that you know from, from criminology. So, um, it, is a it is a frightening system and I have been very surprised how acquiescent people are to this relinquishing of control towards technology. Yeah. And I have been very surprised how the leaders in these movements, whether it be Facebook or Apple or whatever like, like that, uh, don't seem to have any concern, in my view, for, for these issues. Uh, as well as that, freedom of speech can't exist in, in, in a very controlled society. You can't have freedom of speech. And people have assumed that freedom of speech, uh, there's been some great golden era of freedom of speech in the past. It's not, it's not true. It's been a slowly evolving thing. If you look at, for example, in the time of Queen Elizabeth, after the Reformation, uh, Queen, Queen Elizabeth, she had the office of the master of the revels. So for Shakespeare to get his, his play published, he would have to walk up to the master of the revels to make sure that there was nothing in the, his play that offended you know, the, the, the government. And only without permission could he be published. In fact, the copyright system, as it grew up in the common law system, was a system of control, not of, of rights for the author. It was to control the publication. So initially, when the printing press came, there was a free-for-all, the elder views, and then they controlled it. Mm -hmm. So then they cut it down, and you couldn't. In fact, in my grandfather's time, uh, looking at the military records recently, they had a concert where they were singing Irish songs, and they were raided by the... Uh, the military police. Uh, so, so this idea that there's been a great era of of freedom of expression, and particularly then, then again, of course, two world wars. You've always have restrictions on freedom of speech. The, the 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 value of freedom of speech, as expressed in some Supreme Court decision in the United States, uh, is being undermined seriously by technology. And we have a lot of individuals who don't really have any knowledge about rights. They're not interested in 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 uh, higher order things that from their own admission they, they, uh, as far as I can see to, to make a generalization and they will have no power in relinquishing in fact there is a very strong view that the evolution of the individual uh, man or woman is to be godlike and that is an alternative view mm -hmm. so one finds that throughout esoteric culture it's true uh, esoteric but the meaning of a in this context, is is a bit different. Uh, so, in a technological context, it's to achieve a whole range of powers that might uh, and perhaps uh, live in eternity, but in a jar like a brain in a bat. <laughs> I yeah. don't fancy that, yeah. and I don't fancy the idea that we might be used as a battery somewhere, and you wouldn't be able to turn your uh, yeah. unless you had studied esoteric practices, you <laughs> wouldn't be able to turn your brain off. I, I suspect some of the Tibetan monks would be able to do that. I suspect some of the martial artists would be able to do that, but normal people wouldn't have any control over. It. And this idea, and this is a, this is a thing that I This is where I, I would part. With when I look at Terence McKenna and Timothy Leary, where they seem to be going to in the end, they were talking about consciousness linking and all this and yeah. information. I got worried about that because for me, it seems to be a prefiguration of what 
a lot of the technology people we're going to we're going to have your consciousness joined in the pool you're only a piece of meat and you can help yeah. us and i don't like that what and about the notion that we are actually cells in a larger organism that the planet itself is alive and, uh, and i don't have any problem with that mm -hmm. but all the spiritual traditions start off on the notion that you are a very special a very special being yeah uh, all the traditions say that uh, you have an element of the divine in you, whether you be created in the image of the divine or you have the divine spark or the Atman, whatever you want. They all say that. They Now, of course, excluding cases where people have been, uh, say, cruel to animals or whatever, and they don't respect other animals because they see they're superior, the scientific method leads to that view, but not the, sp shouldn't, the spiritual view shouldn't do. So... Uh, from there came the idea that we have an essential dignity. Mm -hmm. The essential dignity is God-given in that sense, in the sense that it's a higher order thing. Mm -hmm. So you cut that link, as C.S. Lewis said, you won't get the same thing. It'll be very, very easy, massive resources against the view. If you stand against it, you will be just some kind of lower person on the caste, because I think a scientocracy will generate a caste system. Mm -hmm. And the people at the bottom will be the people who don't want to be involved, who don't want to have their genes manipulated. Now, I'm not talking about all the beneficial things for medical reasons and all that, but we always hear about the, the benefits. We don't hear about the costs. The same thing in relation to the scientific method. They'll tell us, here's the benefit. This is great. This is, what's the cost? Well, well, it seems to me that, that the pressing argument that I hear for some kind of a global order is is that we're facing potential extinction if if we can't get our act together on this planet and find some kind of unity that there are many many threats created by humans pollution nuclear weapons nuclear waste uh, you you could global warming you can come up with a list of things that uh, threaten the very existence of humanity on this planet and uh, people suggest that we're if we don't have some sort of global consensus, we won't be able to address these large issues. I think there's a lot of evidence that we are in some kind of end game. I, 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 I have come to that view myself, so I'm not, and I'm not saying that in an alarming way, but over a period of historical development, I'm not talking about the end of history or anything like that, but there are existential threats. But each existential threat you, you find has a scientific basis behind it. The momentum is from science, and not just science, the patent system, the intellectual property. You come up with an invention tomorrow, and you get a monopoly for 20 years to exploit a legal monopoly. And so this incentive, you know, creates a drive forward without a braking system, okay? Mm -hmm. So we are driving forward with a number of, of forces. Mm -hmm. So you hear Elon Musk appropriately say that, as far as I remember, that artificial intelligence is summoning the devil. Uh, Stephen... Hawking said that it could lead to the extinction of humans. Again, more scientific forces towards, and of course, the environmental uh, issue. Although I haven't seen in the scientific method any commitment to protecting nature and the forces. So I can understand that people are very suspicious when the people that have caused the problem, that are willing to engage in the destruction of uh, environment to get their things, turn around and say, look, we have the solution. You have been the problem. Not true. If, if you look at uh, traditional societies, for example, 
Now, I know there's counter-arguments and they begin to revisit that and change it, but their impact on the environment, you know, the, 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 I know there's a discourse on that, but it, it wasn't as big as a mechanized industrial, military industrial complex. Uh, and the scientists are not very good on stopping wars happening. They've mm. singularly failed on that. Mm. They're not interested in that. There's no evidence that they have ethical mm. uh, considerations which derive from their system of knowledge that stop these things. And they say, well, that's sort of people's choices. But still, they're, they're engaged in this mm. process. So I, 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 under, I understand the argument. And I understand also, here's the other problem, that um, if you look at these uh, Bohemian Grove uh, Bilderberg. We see, we see uh, people meeting. Uh, people who are very wealthy and powerful who powerful, yeah. join together in, in associations and clubs and, yeah. and discuss issues like uh, the future of uh, governance on the planet. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And who are probably the incipient, you know, the incipient or elements of the incipient world government, of course, that won't be able to exclude China and and Russia and uh, other countries in that because it's not going to happen barring a catastrophic a, a catastrophic war that I know some elements seem to want. There's always a a, a drive to war in that. But sorry. Well, uh, it needn't be a war. It could be any kind of large-scale global catastrophe could catalyze some sort of a uh, dramatic movement toward a, a global regime of some sort. Yeah, well, we see that in Independence Day and the aliens coming. But we also have to anticipate. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, if you look at uh, the uh, history of the United States, for example, or other countries, we see that it's very, very easy to create a pretext for war. Mm -hmm. I still don't understand the forces that led to all the British and Irish joining up to enlist to go and be slaughtered in, in the trenches mm -hmm. in war. I, I still, it's yeah. beyond my comprehension. After reading all, I cannot understand how that happened. You, you can begin to understand when you look at factors such as the fact that they had open-ended con uh, contracts for armaments production. So they were going to, mm -hmm. they were going to produce weapons to the best of their capacity. And in a way, the individuals were sacrificed to, to, to these weapons. And it's interesting, of course, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, of course, uh, C.S. Lewis, who, who comes from Ireland, uh, um, and Tolkien, uh, meeting in Oxford and Tolkien, uh, being in, in, in the First World War, uh, well, Tolkien came back with his fantasies and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I wonder, but does that fantasy help in any of the situation in relation to the issues? Does it address any of, of what was going on and, or is it an escape? Is it a useful contribution? On the other hand, Lewis was trying to say, well, what does this mean? Where, where do we, why is these things happening? Because there have to be some preventative mechanism. And where I think we're getting to is that there is, the, the, the finality is that there has to be a reckoning between people who are taking a spiritual path and people who believe that we are machines who can be improved by technology, and that's all we are, and that there's nothing special about consciousness that may not even exist, and we should relinquish our consciousness to the greater good, to the more intelligent artificial intelligence, and the nothing special. So that's where we're coming to. So that's why what we talked about in relation to mysticism, irrespective of whether you're you're a Hindu, Muslim, Catholic, Protestant, whatever, it doesn't matter. 
There is a similarity of interest in relation to emphasizing the importance of spiritual values and not utilizing spiritual traditions as an, uh, uh, as an excuse to promote division and war. That's not what, 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 what spiritual, spirituality should be about. It should be about the opposite, the counterforce to that. And we can even see it in Star Wars. We know that Star Wars was influenced heavily by, by Joseph Campbell's idea. We have an empire and we have, a, we have people fighting against an empire and we have the force which I, I believe that George Lucas studied yeah. mystical traditions to come up with a, a, a concept of the force. Comes through very strongly uh, yeah. in, the, in that series, yes. Yeah, and we can also think of Philip K. Dick, the great Californian uh, n- novel writer who anticipated with Blade Runner and, and a number of these mm-hmm. films that people are familiar with, uh, where the future was going through myst- mystical experiences. He had this vision that we were still living in what he called a black iron prison, which was controlled by the Roman Empire, which had never gone away. He saw that. Mm-hmm. He thought it was manifesting itself in the Nixon administration. Mm-hmm. That was his perception. Um, and uh, we were talking about that in relation to Archibald Cox, who I met. Yes. Name drops. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Philip K. Dick was very interested in that. But he foresaw a dystopian result in relation yeah. to the control of technology. Well, I think it ultimately may boil down to human nature itself. If there's going to be uh, any kind of a global coming together, whether it's governmental or organic in some sense, uh, we have to deal with our own nature, who we are. We, uh, you know, one might say we're primates. We do have aggressive instincts. We do have an urge uh, to be the dominant alpha male uh, in in society. Uh, many spiritual traditions uh, address this, though, overcoming our, in effect, our animal nature. Well, the problem is that uh, when I was in, in, in teaching in Britain and I was watching the run-up to the Iraq war uh, and I couldn't figure it out, uh, I couldn't figure out that there was millions of people marching uh, on the streets. Yeah. So the public didn't want the war. So you're talking about yeah. what people want. They didn't want that that war. Uh, we can. I, I was over here on uh, on 43rd Street, I think, and Colin Powell's car went down to go to the United Nations to do that presentation. The false information about yeah. the weapons of mass destruction in there, and we had a. A devastating war, and yeah. that that had a profound effect on me. Mm-hmm. That this, hearing all these things about how nice people were, that it didn't matter. The war was going to happen because there's interest, and I was amazed that the public couldn't couldn't impede that. And that that that, that that's mm-hmm. quite frightening. So, uh, and there's it, the public seems to be quite persuadable uh, on things which are uh, which which are dangerous to the general good. So here it comes back to. It comes back to the individual. The individual has to be a whole person. So that's what holy means. And that's what healing involves. All the words come from a similar root. So we have to be a whole person, as in the the yin-yang thing. Recognize the diversity. But in that, we have to accept that we have a body, mind, and soul. We have to look after our body as best we can. Take your vitamins, do the exercise, do the yoga, do the walking, do your martial arts, do what we have to do that. We have to look after our mind. We have to 
look at what we can see in this limited reality and the limited sliver on the electromagnetic spectrum and listen to what we're saying. We have to be able to be critical individuals who are sovereign. And we have to have our spirituality, in my view. And there, there's various, the, the French philosopher who, who wrote the article who couldn't understand how so few people could control so many. And he, he concluded that it was on the basis of the relinquishing of control of people. So we are guilty of that. It's not that people say, well, I have nothing to do with that. That's, we relinquish our control. We relinquish it through our attention. So if we spend all our time uh, with a, a minimal free attention we have on uh, on reality TV, for example, or, or, or things... Well, that's what we're, we're worshipping. That, that's what we're giving our attention to. And if it's at the expense of the things in the background, you, f you find as well uh, the big jumps in attention in reality TV when there's something nefarious going on in the background. Yeah. We're guilty in not focusing our attention. So the, we, we, there, there is evidence from Dean Radin and, and the Institute of Noetic Science uh, about how individuals meditating can affect mm. the, the world. So... My argument is there hasn't been enough genuine commitment to the growth of individuals who may be able to create mass movements or of themselves, where they're individuals, where they're magnetized and moved by a genuine commitment against war or whatever, as was, as was in Berkeley in relation to the Vietnam War. That, 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 that's, that's lost. But that, that can be manipulated. We always have to be careful because what I believe has happened in the left-right politics is there are people moving between. So what we think was a left-wing position may be not actually a left-wing. What we think was a conservative, it was not. So that philosophy is there in relation to ideas of entryism and, and things like that. So we have to be very, very critical. We, we can't relinquish sovereignty. We have to inform ourselves and we still have to grow as an individual. Edith Stein the, the Jewish Catholic uh, convert, she was still practicing her view when she was in Auschwitz before before she she died. So the 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 journey in the spirit never happens, even in the in, in the most horrendous circumstances. But I would say I, I would say I think what you meant to say is the journey in the spirit is never squashed. And it's never squashed. That's correct. It's you never squashed. It's never over. And it will never stop because of external conditions. In fact, that's when it's most valuable. That, 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 yeah. that, that spiritual courage, courage from the heart, accord, etc. So, uh, I, I would say to you that what I'm afraid of in all these debates is that it's very easy to manipulate us. I believe actually, if you look at 1949, uh, the cybernetics group, in London, you had a Macy conference over in the United States, but in, in London you had the Ratio Club. And these were all the people who were interested in computers and behavioral science. And they met effectively, they met in the basement of the Queen's Hospital near Russell Square in London. They had Alan Turing was there before the, he was, began to be persecuted. And they were looking at cybernetics. Some of, a lot of them had been involved in the Second World War. And they, they set about looking at how they were going to be able to control human behavior. So these guys now know more about us than we do ourselves. Mm -hmm. And we're easily manipulated. And they have formulas and algorithms that can mani manipulate us. And you notice, as in imperial systems, the primary policy is to divide and conquer. 
So what you do is you divide into two groups, and then they're still going against you. You divide into other groups. You create different things. You create reasons why that group. That's very handy because then you can proceed with your agenda. And that seems to be happening across the globe. It's happening across the the, the globe. So I, I, I don't want people to be forced into a group. I'm for this. I'm against that. I'm for this. I'm against that. There has to be a middle ground. If the middle ground disappears, as Yates said, you know, the, the center cannot hold and all things fall apart. If the middle ground, consistent with ideas in Buddhism, consistent with ideas in Vedanta, uh, consistent with ideas in Christianity, remember again, Jesus said, well, he was, he was there with the, um, the Roman Empire and he's saying, but, uh, render unto Caesar was, uh, what is Caesar's. So, my kingdom is not of this world. That's what the spiritual tradition says. So Jesus, if you look at it in an esoteric idea, um, Jesus was crucified uh, on Calvary, Calgotha. The head, the skull is the Calvarium, is it the, the sutures cross on the head. Mm. The fontanelle is important in relation to Buddhists. And when you die, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the soul is believed to exit that way or maybe come in that way. Um, and the spirit was released on Calvary from the in, uh, in esoteric tradition oh, by, oh. by the Christian thing, mm. emphasizing that the superior that the the, the 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 place of the scroll above the temple, uh, the spirit was the most important thing, irrespective of what the external thing is. The problem is if there's an existential threat to all mankind or to all spiritual traditions. Well, then the question is, well, how does that persist? But that may be the end game. That may be the destiny of humans. They are not intelligent enough with all their wisdom, with all their scientific data, with all their cybernetics, not intelligent enough to prevent their own destruction by discourse and the better uh, and the better angels of our nature. Well, then the question might be, is that not the destiny of, of this species? But why people would want to sacrifice the noble things that we do know for a kind of mechanical dream is something I can't fathom. But a lot of people seem to be willing to do that. And the preoccupation of mobile devices, which will become wearable devices, which will become implants that you won't be able to opt out of, is happening. I should mention for benefit of our viewers, when I asked you for a cell phone so I could meet you at the airport in Albuquerque, you informed me you don't use a cell phone. That's right. Uh, uh, and I don't even drive, which is strange in America. <laughs> but you still, you still, you still, we still met. Yes. So, and you're so, here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there's nobody bothering me. Uh, on, on my mobile phone. But I mean, there is an important thing. When you have a screen that, that takes your attention, you have to remember that if we accept that we're living in this, this restricted sliver of perception, and then that's not an accurate reflection of reality, and then we put a screen in our view. A screen is meant to give us a window on the world, but a screen also keeps things out. Sunscreens keeps things out. Yeah. So the, 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 this screen takes out more reality. We're being driven into a situation where it's very easy to pay puppet master with us by machines, by people who have extracted all the data. And one legal point which is important, I don't want to miss this point. You may have noticed a lot of interest in data protection in recent years. Where did the concern for data protection come from? It came from realization that the Nazis would not have been able to persecute the groups that they did if they hadn't had a card index system, IBM, uh, uh, that they were able to use and identify who people were. 
So they were able to identify using the census as well, which I believe that there was a, one of the, the, the census had identified people by religion. They were able to identify where they were. So afterwards, people, after the, 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 the uh, Holocaust, people began to say, well, maybe we should be careful with our data and we shouldn't be used because you don't know in the, in the future who's going to be in control. So the groups that are being celebrated now and are voluntarily given all the information that they want and subscribing to certain identities may be persecuted in the future. They, we have to be cautious about this in the long term. You can't take short-term factors where we're being played by other people. In the end, every individual on this planet, is by every individual, irrespective of what creed they are, or skin color, or it doesn't matter. Every individual is special. And if they begin to realize that and believe in it and ignore some of the other nihilistic doctrines of existential despair that's promoted, not just by science, but also in a lot of literature. I think of Samuel Beckett, for example, an Irish writer, very gifted, but he takes away the mystery and leaves the misery in his place. I don't, I don't fancy that. I'd rather the mystery rather than a misery. Uh, so we have to be careful. Uh, well, James Tunney, once again, an eloquent exposition of very complex issues that have troubled me for, for quite a while, but I feel heartened in the sense that this discussion uh, is really one of the reasons that I keep putting out these videos three times a week. Mm. I, I think it's just so important for people to be able to think these things yeah, through. Yeah, yeah. And and I value uh, very heartily your emphasis on the individual. Yes, yeah, that's that's critical. And uh, again, I have to thank you for being so kind and, and so helpful and, and so interesting to engage with. You're really impressive in, in your in, in the way you make, make me feel relaxed and, and able to to get the points across. I appreciate that. Well, thank you so much for being with me. I think many of our viewers who have gotten this far are also very grateful to you. Okay, I appreciate that, yeah. Yes, and thank you for being with us.